0: I was sitting in a Rotary meeting on 5 January 2005 when my phone rang, immediately costing me a few dollars' fine paid to Rotary Charitable Causes. I answered. My wife was on the phone. She had just received a phone call from the number 2 Admiral for the Navy in Hawaii. They were requesting that I immediately come there and work with them on the tsunami relief effort we had undertaken as a nation a few days before just a poor fair and stranger traveling through Hi everyone this is Ivy Tara Blair coming to you from Shelter in Place Missoula Montana presenting Ivy Tara Blair unplugged quarantine edition Today I have a special reading And before I get started introducing it, I want to give a strong content warning. Because COVID is causing disastrous breathing problems, there are descriptions of uh, breathing interventions in this short piece. There is also victory in this short piece, rather than tragedy. But I know that for a lot of people, hearing descriptions of that will be more than they can undertake. I am reading to you a book that is very dear to me. It is called Faces of the Tsunami, written by Rear Admiral Bill McDaniel, retired U.S. Navy. The 26th of December 2004, an earthquake and subsequent tsunami devastated Indonesia and other Indian Ocean littoral countries. Tens of thousands were homeless. So many were injured, all hospitals mostly destroyed. So the USNS Mercy ship was deployed to help with the disaster relief effort, along with an international group of medical professionals. Bill McDaniel was instrumental in this relief effort. He was in charge of the medical effort on Mercy. And this is his story. It's a story with triumphs and tragedies and every kind of painful and joyful experience one might have in months of helping a country after an aftermath of this scope. And the reason I'm choosing to read something that sounds so bleak is that there are times when we are dealing with trauma and it seems so hopeless and we feel so helpless that hearing a story of trauma can help us, can uplift us. For some people, this story may be too much, which is why I'm splitting this podcast into two podcasts. This one and a podcast devoted to Faces of the Tsunami. But I wanted to read this introductory chapter to let you know that the new podcast will exist. And because it is particularly pertinent to what we have going on right now with COVID, Bill McDaniel is my father. I grew up with a father who was a hero. And this is not the only time he was a hero. But you know, when you're a kid and everything just seems normal, I just thought this guy was a normal guy. He was not. <laughs> he is a delightful writer. He's also, at moments, very funny. I've never had a conversation with my father in which I didn't end up belly laughing many times. So that's why this story is so dear to my heart, and yet it is amazingly pertinent to what we're going through. So I hope that everyone enjoys this introduction, and I hope that you will join me with the second podcast, which will be titled Ivy Tara Blair, Unplugged, Faces of the Tsunami. All our days in this Herculean effort were difficult, and all were emotional. Perhaps my emotions reached their peak one day more than two months into our venture. Truly, I look back through a blur of emotion and not a few tears, and picking one day that stands out seems nigh on to impossible. But it might have been one day on Nias Island. We had already been in Banda Aceh for two months, and had transitioned to Nias Island after their 8.7 earthquake on 28 March 2005. I was making rounds in the largely destroyed Gunung Siktoli Hospital when they asked me if they could send a 13-month-old boy to Mercy. He had severe pneumonia and a weeping father standing meekly by as they tried to help the infant. That boy was his only surviving family member. All the others had perished when their home collapsed during the quake. I returned to Mercy about every third day to take a shower, change clothes, and get an American meal anyway, so I told them I would deliver the infant to the ship. I'm an orthopedic surgeon, and thus not entirely comfortable dealing with a severely ill and poorly equipped to do so. Give me a broken bone and I'm happy. A baby barely breathing and gasping for breath is not exactly my forte, and indeed scares me about as much as it scares most anyone. However, not knowing exactly what I did not know, I gathered the gravely ill infant up in my arms, with Dad holding an IV bag, which was trying to deliver fluid to the severely dehydrated child through a precariously placed tiny needle in a tinier vein. I got a van to take us to the local soccer field, the staging area for our helicopters as they arrived from Mercy. During the 15-minute trip from the hospital to the field, I noticed with some alarm that the infant was really having difficulty breathing. His father had noted that fact also, and just wept harder as we rode along, sure that his son was dying. It seems that Dad was a considerably better diagnostician than I was. Once at the field, I requested the military radio operator to contact the ship and get a helo en route to us. He turned to the radio and initiated a conversation. Content with the efficiency of the communication process, I retreated under a roof shelter with the baby and his father, with an interested mix of locals looking on. They enjoyed the spectacle of the helicopters arriving and leaving, and perhaps the drama encountered occasionally when a patient was particularly ill. I was not to disappoint them. The baby would cease breathing and start turning blue. I would shake him, wipe his face and body down with a towel, and repeatedly entreat him to breathe. The baby would gasp for a while, and then the cycle would repeat itself. I had borrowed a towel from the van that brought us to the field, and had the father keep it damp with a bottle of drinking water he had with him. Dad just wept, and the surrounding crowd watched curiously. They didn't understand anything I was saying, which was just as well. It was not medical or scientific talk at all, just abject begging for the child to live and to continue breathing. The crowd grew to perhaps a hundred folks watching silently. They had seen so much death that this was just another to them, I suppose. Not to me, though. I have never had a baby die in my arms, ever. I sure as hell. Did not want this to be the first time. After thirty minutes or so, I grew restive. The helo drivers usually responded quickly, and there was still no sign of an incoming bird. I walked over to the comms fellows and asked them if they had gotten through to the ship. Yep, they had. Father followed me along, holding the IV bag. I noticed that it was not running. The IV had become dislodged, and the child was no longer getting fluids. I did not have another IV set up to attempt another stick, which I guess was a good thing. I could never have found a vein in this critically ill infant anyway. Another thirty minutes or so passed. Now, you should understand that these were absolutely the longest minutes I had ever endured. Ever. I was constantly stimulating the child, tickling his feet, bathing him in cool water. Anything to keep him responding enough to just take another breath, and another. And I talked. Dr. Dana Brainer, a wonderful pediatric intensive specialist from Portland, had told me a few days earlier when we were rescuing another very sick infant from the Russian tent hospital that he had never lost an infant while he had been talking to them. I don't know why that might be so. Perhaps the babies stay alive to see what inane thing you might be saying next? Regardless, with little medical expertise to fall back on in the current circumstance, I followed Dana's advice. I talked nonstop for close to two hours. I sure hope the Indonesian onlookers did not speak English. My abject begging would not have comforted them with a tremendous knowledge base of medical care made in America. After the longest hours wait in my history of ill infants, I went back over to the comms guys. They assured me that they had passed the word along. I grabbed the mic from them. Where the hell is my helicopter? This baby is dying here. There was a moment's silence. Who is this? The speaker responded. This is Admiral McDaniel. Who the hell did you think was waiting out here for you guys to show up? Admiral McDaniel, did you want a medevac chopper? I almost dropped the mic. Hell yes, I want one. I wanted one an hour ago. This kid is going to die here with Dad. And about 100 Indonesians watching our lack of efficiency. Suddenly, another voice came on the line. Admiral, this is the flight deck on Mercy. I'm sorry, sir. We did not get the word that you had an urgent mission. We were going to send a routine bird later. They're departing the deck now, sir. I don't know what happened. I know the kids at the field communication station had passed the word along. Just garbled comms, I guess. As it turned out, the ship was about 80 miles away, so it took another 45 for the helo to get there. It did so with style, however. Instead of the usual high-slow approach so they would not disturb any of the surrounding buildings, they came in low and extremely fast, blowing several sheets of tin off roofs en route. Dad and I ran toward the field and were aboard within seconds of their arrival. We departed just as they had arrived, low and fast, to the cheers of the gathered onlookers. This was a far more exciting extraction than they were used to seeing out of the field. Plus, maybe they had understood the gravity of the situation. Or perhaps they were just tired of hearing me talk. I was getting hoarse by that point. To my good fortune, another physician had shown up shortly before the helo arrived, and he joined me in my efforts to keep this kid among the living. And frankly, both of us were slowly losing ground in that effort. We arrived back at the ship, and my friend Dr. Brainer was waiting on the flight deck. As I sit editing this for the umpteenth time... Remembering my feelings when I saw an extremely competent Dana Brainer waiting on the flight deck again brings me close to tears. The relief of being able to pass this kid along to someone as wonderful as Dana was at saving kids was absolutely indescribable. Within moments, he had the child back in the receiving medical ward where a gang of professionals started working on him. IVs, intubation, chest tube, etc. All the things I could not do for him on a soccer field— or any place else. I stood, silently, watching as they swarmed around the child, feverishly working on him. The head nurse appeared next to me, clutching my arm. Admiral McDaniel, would you like to sit down? Can I get you something to drink? I looked at her through a haze of tears. I was suddenly so exhausted that I was almost falling down. But... I could not leave that spot until I knew what was going to happen to the child. I tried to say something to her, but I was all talked out, I guess. I just shook my head and turned back to the action, watching. Not even hoping. I was just too tired to hope. After some time, 30 minutes or so, my friend Dana Brainer turned to me and smiled, giving me a gloved thumbs up. I turned and slowly made my way back across the ward to the chairs where Dad was sitting, still silently crying. Think about it. This slight, 40-year-old man had awakened six days before with his house fallen down around him, with all the members of his family dead around him. Only this one son, Benny, was alive. He was all that there was left. And he then watched him get progressively more ill with pneumonia probably the after-effects of breathing the dense dust which had arisen in the air after the earthquake. So, yep, he was still crying. Perhaps he had not stopped in six days. I collapsed next to him, totally and completely emotionally and physically exhausted. One of the interpreters was standing near. He tapped me on the shoulder. Dr. McDaniel, the father wants to know if his son has died. I felt like an idiot. I don't know why, but I guess I had assumed that he knew the team had given me a thumbs-up, so I had let him suffer a few minutes longer than he needed to. Tell him Benny is alive, and I think he will live. The interpreter chatted with the father for a few minutes. The father turned to me, eyes red and exhausted-looking. I smiled and gave him a thumbs-up. The father wants to know if he can see his son. So I took him by the hand and led him across the medical spaces, suddenly aware of how foreign and scary this entire setup probably was to him. When we arrived at the low retaining wall short of the bed, all we could see were the backs of doctors and nurses, with the wheezing of the respirator and bags of fluid hanging from poles. Benny was totally obscured. I yelled at Dana. Dana! Is there any chance Dad can see that his son is under all that equipment? Dana looked up and grinned, moving a couple of people aside and revealing Benny, small and silent, but breathing, breathing most of all. Dad must have had an inexhaustible source of tears, because he turned and grabbed my hand with both of his, tears again streaming down his face. With great dignity, he bowed his head, touched his hand to his heart, and murmured, Teddy Makasi, Teddy Makasi, Thank you. Thank you. Jeez. All I could do was try to match him tear for tear. I've thought about Benny many times over the years since then. I imagine that someday he will have such bad dreams, he will have to see a psychiatrist. His complaint will likely be that he continues to see in his dreams this big, ugly, freckled man leaning over him, and the guy just would not shut up. Just wouldn't shut up, like that was the most important thing he could do, talk. The chief nurse finally came over to me and led me away to a hot cup of coffee. I went happily, but totally depleted. I slept soundly that night. Benny lived. If I ever have to do something like that again, I may not. That was a scene from the introduction to Faces of the Tsunami by Rear Admiral Bill McDaniel, coordinating the medical relief effort after the tsunami that hit Indonesia aboard the USNS Mercy. I won't continue reading this book as part of the main podcast. This book belongs on its own. But I wanted to include this introduction to remind all of us that even in the middle of Absolute disaster. Medical disaster. There are victories as well as tragedy. And that everyone working to save our lives is doing it at the absolute utmost extent of their endurance, physical and emotional and spiritual. We owe them so much more than we can possibly repay. And this is Ivy Tara Blair. Everyone stay home and be good to each other.